welcome to the Empower Church podcast. My name is Matt Garner, and I'm the pastor at Empower Church here in Melbourne, Australia. We're so glad you've joined us today, and I am believing that today's message is not only going to inspire you and encourage you, but it's going to empower, equip, and challenge you to be everything that God has called you to be. Hey, if you want more information about what we're up to at Empower Church, just jump on our website, empowerchurch.co, and all the details are there. We really hope that you enjoy the message. Uh, good morning, church. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here online. So excited to get into the Word this morning. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And this is the Word of the Lord, and it reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Thank you for joining us, church. I wonder if we would just pray together right now around the Word. Lord, we just thank You for who You are. And God, we just worship You and we honour Your presence. And we thank You that You are merciful and that You are gracious and that Holy Spirit, you would illuminate this word to us this morning, that you would reveal its meaning to us and you would help, it, help us apply it to our everyday lives and everyday situations. And God, we just thank you for your word that is living, that it is active and sharper than the two-edged sword. And Lord, we just pray that we get a greater glimpse of Jesus this morning. So I pray that you bless our church community wherever we are, whenever we're listening to this today. In your awesome mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, it is so good to come around a book like Colossians. I mean, Colossians is so rich when it comes to our, our theology of who Jesus Christ is. It's, it's dense with Christology, with our knowledge of Jesus Christ as God. And Paul is really pushing the boundaries here when he's writing this, especially verse 15 to 20, which is what we're looking at this morning. He's really pushing the boundaries. He's going beyond individual salvation. He's even zooming out beyond the salvation of Israel and of um, the nations. And he's zooming out to the nth degree. And he's talking about the preeminence of God. And he's talking about the purpose and the reason for everything that exists. And, he's, and even the things that are unseen. And he's attributing it to Christ. And the theme is so monumental. And he's writing to a group of people in Colossae. He's writing to a church of Colossae who are predominantly Gentile. However, there's also a large Jewish settlement also living there. So in the church, it's also true. There's a bit of Gentiles, there's a, there's a bit of Jewish um, culture happening there. And so when, whenever you have um, people with varying degrees of, I guess, how they look at the world and different perceptions and what have you, you're going to have a bit of a melting pot. You can have some different opinions. And Paul is actually writing in response to some heresies that have actually began to bud in the church. And we don't 
didn't know exactly what these heresies were in the context of Colossae, but what we can kind of assume safely um, regarding the text and looking at how persuasive Paul is with these big themes about Christ being God and, and etc., we begin to understand we were somewhere in the ballpark that there was an attack against the supremacy of Christ and the fact that he is Lord and he's God. And Paul was really writing in response and he's emphatically saying, he's declaring that the goal, that the purpose for creation, everything that exists is all in Christ, that it's for Christ, it's because of Christ and it's through Christ. Essentially what he's saying, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> and I think it's so helpful when we read this because it really reminds us about um, Jesus and how central he is to our faith. And I just want to preface uh, before we continue that I am going to completely and utterly fail when it comes to conveying all the glories that are present in this text, pointing us to Jesus. I mean, the theology, if we're really to dig and dig and dig, you'll constantly be finding gems and pearls and precious stones. It will just constantly be yielding. We could probably do a series, maybe for weeks, on just this text alone, on just this chapter, and we'll still be finding more. We will not exhaust the rich treasure that is embedded in this scripture. And we quickly re realize when we look at the book at Colossians and really any of the Pauline texts, even the Gospels, any part of the Bible, we quickly begin to realize that this is above our heads, man. This is like way beyond our ability to rationalize what's happening here. We can't really understand this completely. And if you're hoping for a mathematical explanation, if you're hoping for everything scientifically to be laid out, you're going to be scratching your head because the truth is we can't possibly comprehend everything that the text is saying. And that's why when we come to the text, we don't shine the torch. We're not the ones um, shedding light on the torch, but we need to ask and pray that Holy Spirit will reveal to us and shine the light that is in the word to us and reveal it to us. And I say this, you might be asking, well, why are you saying it? I say it because we're quickly reminded as Christians that most things that we believe are above our heads and beyond our ability to rationally explain. I mean, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that there was nothing and all of a sudden he speaks and there's light. We believe that there was nothing and all of a sudden there are things all by the power of his word. Even if we go beyond creation, we believe that uh, that God is not just uh, one God, but he's the only God, but he also exists in three distinct persons in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. And this doctrine is unique and it is a distinctive of, a, of the Christian um, life and of our faith. And yet, even though it's the very thing that people say that's unique to Christianity, we must admit that we can't fully comprehend it. Even though when we look through the scriptures, we could see this beautiful thread of, of the Trinity um, from Genesis to Revelation. And, and although, yes, the word Trinity is not actually mentioned, and, and yes, it, it requires a bit of digging, and it's not necessarily on the sur surface of quite esoteric, we must appreciate that it's there. However, we still can't fully comprehend the glories of the Trinity. It just goes to say that these things are above our heads. We can't fully understand it. And this is the miraculous nature of God. And this is 
why he is God and why we're not, because we can't fully understand everything that's at play. And I really want to point us to three certain words found in the first verse that we're going to be looking at today, and that's verse 15. And these are kind of going to spearhead, they're going to help us spearhead what is the title of this message, which is Christ Lord over everything. And it reads in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to focus on that first word, um, not the first word, but that last word where it says firstborn of all creation. That word firstborn has been rather contentious over um, the history of the Christian um, faith uh, because Quite frankly, um, many people have had different interpretations of what it means to be firstborn. It's not to say that Jesus was created. and It's not also to say that Jesus was firstborn, right, um, by God. It's actually denoting rank. So it's not saying that Christ was born at a time. He's firstborn before the world was created. So it's not mentioned in the Bible. No, 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 it's not saying that. It's actually saying that Christ was his first, that he eternally existed with the Father when creation took place. And there's a word for firstborn in the Greek. It translates as protokos. And it has a dual meaning. It means rank. It denotes um, um, being first. But it also is referenced to that word that we're going to be mentioning a little bit later, which is preeminent. And that word preeminent is, frankly, means superior. It means greatest. Any word that's saying something's better, you could attribute it almost to preeminent. And so it's essentially saying that he's firstborn of all creation. So Christ is the greatest. He is the most superior over everything that exists. The second word we want to look at today is the word image. He is the image. That word in the Greek is ekion, and it translates as likeness or representation. And the use of the word is not to say that um, what is not what you would call a holographic image, where something looks real, but if you were to reach out your hand and touch it, you'd realize that there's nothing tangible other than some flickering lights in the background. And in the same way, we must apply this to our knowledge of Christ, that he is not some cheap knockoff copy that you would find on the Facebook marketplace. I don't know if you've had a bad experience there or maybe off eBay. It's not to say that when you reach out and touch him, he's not there. And when you kill the lights, he ceases to exist. Or if you crucify him, he ceases to be who he is. Rather, it's to say that he is the exact representation of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, that he has a shared reality between the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. They're working to, together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So in other words, Jesus is the real deal. <laughs> he is the image of God is to say that he is God incarnate, born of human flesh, fully God and fully man. And he is the manifestation of God unto us. Everything that is God is manifested in Jesus Christ. And that's why in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says to Philip, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So in other words, he's saying, hey, here I am. You don't need to be looking elsewhere. You don't need to be looking up. I am literally right in front of you. This is Jesus Christ speaking to Philip. And then again, in chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me the commandment what to say and what to speak. 
So here we have Christ as this beautiful bridge, humanity and heaven. We've got God and we've got humanity right now. And Jesus Christ is this integration point between heaven and earth. And it is just this beautiful image. And now we have the third word, which I really want to draw our attention before we just really get into the bulk of the text this morning. And that is the word invisible. It doesn't just say Jesus is the image of God. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that definition of the word invisible, it's not to say that oh, you just can't see it with, the, with your naked eye, although that is true. We can't see God with a naked eye, um, but it's actually denoting something that is unknowable. It's, it's something that is cloaked and shrouded in mystery. And to understand the significance of, of when we say Christ is the image of the invisible God, I'd actually like us to just take a few steps back into the Old Testament. Uh, and we find Moses, who according to Hebrews 11 verse 27, by faith left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And in the book of Exodus, we find Moses and he asks a very poignant question to the Lord. In Exodus 33, verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. Now we can understand and appreciate that this comes from two places. First and foremost, he is the covenant representative between God and the people of Israel. And so as the leader of Israel, man, he needs God to show up and to show off. He can't do this by himself. He can't do this in his own ability. And so he's saying, God, show me your glory. I can't do this. I need your help. But then there's also this other side to Moses where it's also a personal plea. Because while he's seen God move in the, in the, in the burning bush and, and move in signs and wonders to help deliver the people out of Egypt and part the sea, he's recognized that there is a little bit of a disconnect between the move of God and his person. And so he says, please show me your glory. Because it says that the glory of the Lord appeared to him like a cloud. In Exodus 16, verse 10. And then the Lord appeared to him in Exodus 24, verse 17, as a devouring fire. And then again, we find in Exodus 40, verse 34. And again, the Lord covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I kind of wonder why is Moses asking God to show him his glory when clearly he's seeing some very specific and this incredible moves of God. He, he's seeing the glory of the Lord manifest as fire, devouring fire as a cloud. He's seen all these amazing things. Why is he asking this? I mean, I don't know about you, but if this happened to me, you would not hear the end of it. I'll be bragging about it left, right and center. I'd introduce myself and I'd already tell you about what I saw from God before I got into anything else because it's so significant. So why is he asking to show, for God to show him his glory? Well, the, when the Lord appeared to him in a cloud, now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever driven in the morning, early morning in the winter, um, oftentimes there's like a thick, dense, like fog. 
and even a familiar neighborhood can be a stranger to you. Why? Because the fog presents the unknowable. Um, you don't know what's even a few meters away from you. And so when the Lord appeared to Moses as a cloud, yes, it would have been a glorious spectacle to behold, but it also would have been unknowable. He doesn't know this cloud. He can't understand it. It's cloaked in mystery. And again, uh, I don't know about you, but if you ever put your hand over the fire, you quickly realize that it doesn't belong there because there's this unapproachableness to a fire. It's, it's unfriendly almost um, to us. We, we don't work with fire. We don't interact well with fire um, is flesh and bone. And so there's this unknowableness and this unapproachableness. And this is Moses saying, I've seen breadcrumbs. I, I know that there's so much more, but I haven't fully experienced it. I want to know who you are. Show us your glory. Show me your glory. He's seen glimmers. He's witnessed mighty signs, but he still realizes that there's this massive chasm, this great void of separation between God and him. And the Lord actually responds to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20 to 22. And we're going to get back into Colossians just in, in a few moments. But he says to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of that rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Incredible. What's happening here? Moses is longing to know God on a more intimate level, but there's this separation. And so it really sheds some amazing light now that we look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, that it's read as a praise unto God. You know, many theologians believe that the words that Paul used in verse 15 to 20 were probably used actually as a creed for the early Christians. It has a hymnal-like quality. That's why when you read it, you feel like you're preaching because this carries so much oomph, declaring these mysteries, these beautiful, outlandish, bold statements about the deity of Christ. It's just wonderful to behold. And it makes sense that, that Paul is getting at something very particular in the text, that this revealing of God is now made known. So the unknowable has now been made known in Jesus Christ. The unapproachable has now been made approachable in Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ is this integration point between God and humanity. And Paul is, is going through some excruciating lengths to describe that all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and he holds everything together and everything. He is preeminent. And this is very much the language that you would attribute to a Lord. And this revealing of Jesus Christ that, that we now have in Colossians is far surpasses the miracles and the signs that Moses experienced. And this revealing of Jesus Christ is not just so that we can enjoy his miracles. It's not just so that he can do all these amazing things things for us and he can be known in a more personal way it's not just so that he can be adored but it's so that he can be lord and be proclaimed as lord and be our lord and this is of whom the author of philippians got that great prophetic declaration in Isaiah 45 verse 23 that every knee will bow to the lord god and he transfers it he attributes it to jesus christ 
And this lordship that this scripture in Colossians is attributing to Christ <laughs> has no parameters. Let me tell you, it, Jesus Christ as Lord does not exist uh, perfectly and neatly in the confines of our minds. <laughs> He's not the Lord uh, just of our convenience. He doesn't coincide with our lifestyles. His lordship doesn't just neatly complement our lifestyles and our proclivities. <laughs> He's already Lord. He's Lord long before we've recognized him as Lord. He is Lord long before we've been breathing the fresh air of life and long after we've given our last breath. And whether we come to the conclusion that he is Lord or not does not change the fact that he is Lord. And and his Lordship is also not exclusive to some distant field, some foreign land, or even a bunch of zealous Christians that meet a few times a week because it is so excited about Jesus. In verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We understand that Paul was really zooming out to the empty degree. He's saying he is Lord more than what you think. <laughs> He's not just Lord of your salvation. He's not just the Lord that forgives you of all your sins. He is Lord over all the cosmos. He is Lord over the universe. John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through Him, And without him, there was not anything made that was made. Why is he Lord over everything? It says all things without exception. It's to say that Jesus has eternally existed with the Father. And because he always was, he's a being of a supremely different order than anything else in creation. And that's why he is Lord over all things all things including spiritual forces, even earthly kingdoms. It says that he, he, is, he was the beginning and all things were created through him and for him. But then it says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... And Paul is talking about the ranks and the rulers of earth, but he's also talking and he's using Jewish distinctions here to list the rankings of angels. And he's saying every spiritual power is subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ, including those in rebellion to God. That's why whenever Jesus walked around and came in contact with the demonic They lost their composure completely. (laughs) They lost all sense of their bearings. They would cry out things. They would would come to him and ask to be cast out to a herd of pigs. They would cry things out like, Oh Lord, what have you got to do with us, son of David? Have you come to torment us before the time? They would completely lose their composure. Why? Because they are subject completely under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the name above every name. Every demonic activity has to bow at the name of Jesus. It says all things were created through him and for him. So we understand that he is Lord, not just over all the cosmos, not just over all the universe, not just over the principalities and powers, whether they are spiritual or on earth. He's also Lord over life. 
And he is before all things. He is Lord over our priorities. If he is before all things, that means he is the greatest priority. That word preeminent means that he is superior. He is first. He is foremost. He is best. And if he's Lord of our priorities, when we read something like Exodus 13 verse 20, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me we begin to realize that, oh, okay, Jesus doesn't just complement other things that I worship. He must be the only thing that I worship. And we must appreciate that in today's day and age, our idols and other gods are not necessarily the ones that take physical form as a, your classic conventional idol that you find somewhere at the front door or somewhere on, on, on the windowsill or some, something like that. But we can appreciate that an idol, that a God is anything that is taking the affections that should be on Christ. Anything that is before, anything that is there and is taking any thought, any affection, anything. It could be even the things that we like to do. If we realize that it's taking a place in our heart, it doesn't have to be a formal God. It is an idol and it must be subject to Jesus Christ. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing. It must be Jesus and him alone. And verse 17, as we continue, it says, and in him, all things hold together. One of my study Bibles puts it like this. Christ continually sustains his creation, preventing it from falling into chaos or disintegrating. Disintegrating. So he's literally holding everything together and he's stopping everything from unraveling. If he wasn't holding everything together, then there would be complete and utter chaos. There would be complete and utter hopelessness and horror. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it really does back this up. It says, he upholds the universe by the words of his power. And so by this, we understand that he's Lord of all creation. He's Lord over life, over the principalities and powers. And he is Lord over chaos. He holds everything together. Christ's lordship sustains creation and his lordship without it, there'd be nothing to sustain order, but there'd also be no standard for that order. And when you take Christ out of a society, you will have tyranny. And when you take Christ out of a people's consciousness, you will have anarchy. And when you take Christ out of your families and reserve it just for a Sunday service and you compartmentalize your faith, you have positioned yourself for chaos in your family. When we take Christ out of our worship, the only thing that we have left is adulterous worship to some other thing less than him. When we take Christ out of our church <laughs> and the reason why we do church, we're left with hopeless creeds, pointless busy work and gatherings and social events without any redemptive purpose. He holds everything together. We need him. He prevents chaos. Verse 18, as we continue, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is Lord of the church. And you know, his lordship over the church, he loves his church. 
He protects his church. He will cultivate and cherish his church at all costs. It's his bride. And as a pastor of mine once said, be careful what you say about his church, for that is his bride. And so often, we, as even as Christians, we've, we've come into this sort of mentality that we can speak bad about other churches. But can I encourage you today? Can I encourage you to stop undressing the, the, his bride with your words. We've got to be so careful what we, what we say even over dinner. We've got to be so careful what we agree upon because that's his bride and it's beautiful to him and he loves his church. And can I tell you, it's not just the building. It's not just the four walls. If you're watching this with someone, look at them in the eye because you are the church. And you are, why don't you just tell them right now that you are the church. And if it's just you by yourself, tell yourself that you are the church. It's not just the building. It's the gathering of people. And you are his bride and he loves and he wants to protect his church. But he also wants to show off and to show up in his church. He loves his church so much. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, we really see God's intention for humanity. And you really, you really begin to see what God wants to do with his church. Some people say, oh, oh, oh let's just throw away with church. Let's just be done with it. No, no, no. When we read Ephesians 3, verse 10, we begin to realize that we don't get to deconstruct it. We don't get to throw it away or, or make it something that suits us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God wants to show off and to show up with his church. He wants to declare his reign, his manifold wisdom in his church. In the macro church and in the micro church, he wants to use his church. And let me tell you, he wants to use you today. He wants to use you. He wants to display his manifold wisdom through your life. And him being Lord of the church <laughs> is also the reason and our purpose for doing church. And as I said before, we don't get to deconstruct it. We don't get to make it something that, that it's not to suit our lives or because other parts of it doesn't suit our lifestyle or doesn't suit our, our proclivities. We also, we also must realize that him being Lord of the church is not just a Sunday service. It's every single day. Every single day. And this church is his glorious bride and whom he wants to protect, of whom he wants to safeguard. And throughout history, time and time again, he's used the wisdom of this world and he's shamed it. <laughs> with what, what appears to it as foolishness. He, he is cultivating, he's protected his church in ways in which we can't really fully understand, uh, on ways in which we didn't anticipate. But we've seen throughout history where we've seen these amazing resurgence and these amazing revivals that have taken place because some people thought it was going to die, some people wanted it to die, but God used it and he brought forth his glorious church and he displayed his manifold wisdom and he wants to continue to do so and to that I want to read this quote says Christendom has had a series of revolutions and each one of them Christianity has died Christianity has died many times and risen again for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave Chesterton everlasting man we have a God who knows the way the way out of the grave and in verse 18, we can continue reading this passage. It says, he is firstborn from the dead. He's firstborn from the dead because he knew the way out of the grave. 
So he's Lord of the cosmos, he's Lord of the universe, Lord of all creation, Lord of chaos, Lord of the church, Lord of all the principalities and powers, and he is Lord over death. The very thing that grips mankind, the very thing that plagues so many people's thoughts about where they're going to go when they die or when that day is going to be. It's always in the back of some people's minds. Some people can't stop but thinking about it. Can I encourage you that we have a hope of our salvation in Jesus Christ where we do not fear death because the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He will never die again. Again, we come to realize later in the the scriptures that I'm going to read. He has risen from the dead. He knew the way out of the grave. He is Lord over death. And many people um, have died, and even in the Bible, um, they've died and they've been risen from the dead. Uh, Dorcas and Acts, he was was pronounced dead and then he was resuscitated. Uh, And Lazarus, he was dead and then uh, the Lord raised him up again. But the thing about those guys is, is, as glorious and amazing those miracles are, the fact of the reality is this, that they're going to have to die again. (laughs) They're going to have to die a second time. And, and Jesus Christ is the only one who was the perfect sacrifice, who when he died in his death and his resurrection and ascension became a completely different order of being. In Romans 6 verse 9 to 10, we read, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Can I tell you, can I just encourage you that he is preeminent over all things? He reigns, he rules over death. He says, death, where is your sting? In verse 20, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're really beginning to exhaust the definitions of his lordship. But at the same time, we're not even coming close. <laughs> and it's impossible to do it in the time frame that I'm going in right now. But we understand, according to verse 20, that he is Lord over all creation. He's Lord over life. He's Lord over the church. And he is Lord over our redemption. We could not have earned our redemption and achieved it and, and grasped it for ourselves. It was something that he and him alone could have done. You know, many people have been crucified on crosses. <laughs> many people before Christ and after Christ have been crucified on crosses. And it's important to note that good humans, even people that didn't even do nothing wrong, when they are crucified, they do nothing for our faith. They do nothing for us. A person crucified on the cross is a horrific image, but it does nothing for us. The cross has the power it has, not because of the beam, not because of the symbolism of it, not because of the graphic horror and the humiliation of it, but it has the power it has because of the identity of the one who died there. And that identity is one who was perfect without blemish, who was sinless and was the perfect sacrifice arranged with the Father to be the propitiation for us, to take up all our sinfulness, the very thing that God arranged himself to pay the penalty for our sins. Why does he reign? Why does he rule over all the nations? Because he bought them with his precious blood. And 
The cross has this ability to fixate our attention and our imagination and it has this ability to draw and and, and impact our hearts and draw us in precisely because of the identity of the one who died there. The Bible says that he was the perfect lamb without blemish. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was perfect and he didn't deserve it and he took our place and he was Lord. He also endured the humiliation of the cross, God in heaven. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 11 says, And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. He is Lord. He is Lord of creation. He's Lord of the universe, the cosmos. He's Lord over all life. He's Lord over every struggle that you're facing right now. He's Lord over redundancy. He's Lord over uh, sickness and illness and mental illness. He's Lord over every discouragement. He is Lord of every fear. He is Lord of every spiritual power and entity. He is Lord of all chaos. If there's chaos happening in your family, can I encourage you to cling on to Christ because he is Lord and he is Lord of his church and I want to encourage you if you are disconnected if you're far from God come back to him and come back to a people who will encourage you come back into community he is Lord and he is also Lord of our redemption and he is Lord over death and he is Lord of all he is Lord of all With all that being said, I just want to ask a simple question just as we close in this time. I want to ask this, is Jesus the Lord of your life? We've gone through some big definitions. We've done pretty much just an overview really of all the rich treasures that can be found in Colossians. And we've just looked at a few verses today. But in light of the truths that Colossians has shed light on for us, um, we begin to realize that we can't merely... Um, have Jesus Christ and his lordship as part of a compartmentalized life. He can't have a portion of our life. He can't just coincide nicely with our lifestyle. And when things are going great, great, we're good with the Lord. And then we call out to him when we need him. No, no, no. He is Lord of all. And as A.W. Tozer famously put it, he says, if he's not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. And we must recognize that When we proclaim Jesus as Lord, we must come into some definitions of that Lordship because many people proclaim Jesus as my Lord or a Lord or our Lord. And you know what happens? The world says, good job, mate. Yeah, you love Jesus. Good on you, right? People can get down with that. They're not offended by that. (laughs) But when you say that Jesus Christ is Lord, at the exclusion of all other lords, that is when you're going to be met with the unbridled hostility of the world. 
And that hostility is what the early Christians faced in Rome. And it's what they endured and what they suffered under. Because it wasn't that they just worshipped Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, if we look at the context of Rome, they were quite polytheistic and they were quite progressive and they had many gods. And, and, and in many respects, they probably would not have even batted an eye. They would not have cared less in many instances. They say, oh, you worship Jesus? Good on you, mate. Well, I'm sure they spoke in Australian, right? You, you worship Jesus? Sounds good. He sounds like a good person, good teaching. I like it, right? But then they would say, but don't forget to cast some incense to Caesar Augustus, the spirit of Rome. All that was required is that you just cast a little bit of incense and you just give it honor Caesar, the spirit of Rome. And the early Christians flat out refused. They would not tolerate that. They would not subject themselves under the lordship of Caesar. And you might think, what's the big deal? Come on, it's a little thing. Don't worry about it. Just do it. And then you can get on with all the other things that you want to do and all the meetings and all the gatherings and the worship services. Just give your honor to Caesar. And they refused. And because they refused, they were beaten and they were bruised and they were stripped from their possessions and they were taken from their families and they were put in prison and they were uh, thrown to lions. They were hung on crosses, not just because of who they worship, but at the exclusion of who they wouldn't worship. The question we're going to ask ourselves as we close is, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of the creation, the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of life, the Lord over death, the Lord over chaos, the Lord of my redemption, is he my only non-negotiable Lord? Does our worship for Jesus Another question we should ask, does our worship for Jesus also mean the exclusion of all other worship? That's a huge one right now. One more question, do our lives reflect his complete rule over our lives? Some challenging questions, and in my preparation I've been challenged and and motivated by these questions to pursue Jesus with more intensity. Because our definitions are important. If he's a Lord, okay. But if he's the Lord at the exclusion of all other Lords. Definitions are important as we close. Because if he's Lord of all creation, he's Lord of the universe, he's Lord over life and death, over chaos, over his church, over our physical bodies, over (laughs) our redemption, all of life, he's preeminent, he's first. If he's Lord over all that, then he's Lord over your laptop. <laughs> he's Lord over your free time. He's Lord over your phone. He's Lord over barbecues, beach trips and beer. He's Lord over redundancy and doctor's reports and strife. And he's Lord over gossip and slander. And he's Lord over... Conversations at dinner. He's Lord over coffee catch-ups. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord of our Friday nights. He's Lord of our Saturday nights. He's Lord of our Sunday mornings. And he's Lord of our Monday mornings. He's Lord. He's Lord of all. And I wonder as we close if our decisions that we make would be filtered with the reality that he's not just a Lord. He's not just someone that coincides with our life. 
that complements our life, that perhaps makes us a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more interesting as people. It's just something that we do on a Sunday. You know, we go to church. It's just something I do. I occasionally read my Bible. I sometimes pray when I'm really stressed. And I, when we say that he's Lord, I wonder if our, that our lives would be filtered with the reality that he is Lord of all. He's Lord over everything. I wonder if we operated each day filtered <laughs> with that beautiful filter that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wonder how we would speak. I wonder how that would change how we think. I wonder how that would alter how we treat people. I wonder how that impacts our joy. And when these momentary afflictions come at us, I wonder if that would change our perspective for the better. We recognize that he is Lord over everything. And so we could trust in his providence. We could trust in his sovereignty. We can trust in his lordship and his protection and his covering over us. Perhaps you're stressed about something today. Can I encourage you to look at Jesus Christ, the living King of all kings, who's Lord of all creation, who's Lord of a life itself, and give your life to him. Trust in him today. Why don't we pray? Lord, God, you are gracious and you're merciful. And Lord, we thank you for what a joy it is to come around your word and what Holy Spirit you revealed to us. And I pray that you would deposit it and seal it in our hearts, Lord, and that we would leave um, this moment right now with it imprinted, with it seared on our hearts, that you are to be Lord of all. And so, Lord, I pray that our heart's posture would be for you to be glorified and for you to be Lord. I pray, Lord, that the meditations of our heart and the thoughts um, that go through our mind will be on you, Jesus, that we would spend our best thinking hours, our best daily moments meditating and enjoying your presence and giving glory to you, Lord. Lord, I pray for all our church family. I pray for um, everyone here today listening under the sound of my voice that we would find moments to, uh, that you, and that you would show us in a deeper way how great you are and that you are Lord of all. And so, Lord, we commit our worries to you, Lord. We commit our families to you, Lord. And we commit our lives to you, Jesus. And we trust you. And, Lord, we want to give our lives to you in a greater surrender. If there's been things that we've held back from you, perhaps you have not occupied the throne of our heart. Can you do that today? Lord, would you right now this siege, take siege of our heart? Would you storm the, the walls? And would you just right now raise the flag of your victory over our thoughts, over our minds, over our hearts and reign supreme as preeminent as the King of Kings? Lord, we worship you and we give you all the glory. You're the King of Kings and you're the Lord of Lords. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have an amazing day. Thank you for joining us today and we will see you soon. See ya. Bye.